0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute. Today, we'll be talking with Ayelet Hoffman-Lipson about her new book, Law and Self-Knowledge in the Talmud. Dr. Ayelet Hoffman-Lipson teaches at the Harry Radziner Law School at the IDC Herzliya. She's a graduate of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and New York University. She has also held postdoctoral appointments at the Hebrew University and Tel Aviv University. Dr. Lipson Hoffman has won fellowships from the Fulbright Foundation, as well as others. In 2017-2018, she was a guest lecturer at the Harvard Law School. Ayelet Hoffman-Lipson, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Renee. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Before we begin talking about your new book, Tell us a little about yourself.
1: I was born and bred in Jerusalem. My parents came to Jerusalem from South Africa and from England, and I was born here and grew up here my entire life, and I still live here in Jerusalem, now with my husband and my five children.
0: It's a wonderful city, isn't it? I love Jerusalem. One doesn't often see the words self-knowledge and Talmud together. What attracted you to the topic?
1: I've studied Talmud my whole life, since elementary school. And one of the things that I love about the Talmud is that it's this amazing mix of law and nitty-gritty legal questions, together with philosophy and theology and a very keen understanding of the inner world of people. Um, And that was what drew me to this topic.
0: Self-knowledge is a very substantial word. Let's start with self. Uh, You chose to define self as an embodied individual who has both bodily characteristics and psychological states rather than using the many other possible definitions of self. Why is that?
1: That definition is a definition embraced by recent philosophers in the past few decades. Um, And it's a response to philosophers and psychologists who used to describe the self as something that is related only to the psyche. Basically, only thinking about the mind and about the inner world of a person Um, And over the past few decades, both in philosophy and in psychology, there's been a growing understanding that a person is made up of their body as well and that there are deep connections between the mind and the body. Um, And so I followed these scholars in choosing that definition um, and also because I felt that that definition was really most apt for the materials that I was looking at in the Talmud which think about the individual person as a extremely embodied person um, and not just as this kind of philosophical being who lives in the world of ideas.
0: And is self-knowledge the same as self-reflection?
1: So self-knowledge is dependent on reflexivity. That was part of my definition. Um, that a person needs to be able to reflect on themselves in a second-order way. So to be able to look at processes that are happening in your body or in your mind and to be able to reflect on those processes. Um, And that was sort of how I limited the set of cases that I looked at in my book.
0: Talk about the relationship between law, authority, and individual subjectivity.
1: Okay, Um, so normally the way that we think about law and about the self, um, there's sort of a love-hate relationship between law and the inner world of thoughts and experiences of individual people. On the one hand, law is very frequently interested in the internal world for determining the facts of a case, from who done it, to the original meaning of a contract, which depends on what a person intended. On the other hand, because these intentions are so difficult to establish, um, law tends to create a complex system which aims to arrive at the right outcome through reliance on default rules or on presumptions or on expert assessments rather than listening to what the individual has to say, Um, because there's a concern that an individual could lie or an individual is not trustworthy when two individuals are in a legal case. And so the law prefers to rely on either external evidence or on the assessments of experts who are considered objective rather than relying on what people relate about their own experiences or thoughts. Um, And part of law's authority is really built on the expertise of certain people, certain experts who we as a society have said, okay, these experts get to decide what the law is rather than each and every individual, which would cause chaos for for society. Um, and so in general, we tend to think that individuals are subjective and, we, and the law tends to just limit how much uh, power or authority we're going to give to those individuals and prefers to keep the authority of the system and of the law in the hands of the experts.
0: And is it a dynamic relationship or is it simply... Different but static in different societies?
1: So, scholars who study legal systems as they develop over time tend to see that even if a law, even if a legal system grants some authority or pockets of autonomy to individuals or to certain more subjective areas of law, As the legal system develops and grows and it comes to encompass more areas of of life and the law gets more detailed and more regulations are set out, um, then usually law becomes more and more objective. It becomes more focused on external standards and the experts accrue more power as the legal system develops. And what I pointed to in my book is that in the Talmud, we can see the opposite trajectory. So that's very surprising that we find law actually moving from being in the hands of experts to as the law develops and grows, we actually see um, somewhat rescinding of that authority of the experts, and granting more power and autonomy to individual people. Now, I want to say two things about that. First of all, just the very fact that the Talmud represents a legal system is something that needs to be said in this conversation. Um, This may seem trivial, but actually Talmudic research over the past decades has thought more and more about the rabbis primarily as scholars, as academics who are engaged in academic and theoretical exercises. Um, There's a very strong current in Talmudic scholarship in recent years that thinks about the rabbis of the Talmud as a very small minority that did not have any autonomous political rule, okay? They were always, whether in Palestine or in Babylonia, they were actually under the rule of the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire. And so they didn't really have a realistic or functional legal system. Um, And this has to do with our basic ideas about law, that law is related to political power, to having sovereignty, to having the power of coercion. Um, But in fact, I think that one of my one of the ways that this book contributes very significantly to scholarship on the talmud is just by thinking about the talmud as law and realizing that there's a difference between the realia the fact that the rabbis did not have political power but on the other hand when you study talmud you understand that they definitely thought about themselves as developing a functional legal system So they weren't just academics sitting in the study house and thinking about theoretical, philosophical exercises, but they were actually trying to create a functional legal system. And in fact, Talmudic law is far more ambitious than most legal systems because it strives to regulate every sphere of a person's life. So in contrast to contemporary law, which basically says, you know, anything that happens within the family, we don't really enter the house. We sort of leave the private sphere to people's private lives. Talmudic law tries to reign over, you know, law from criminal to civil law, anything that happens in the house, in the synagogue, in the marketplace, obligatory norms, even voluntary norms like charity, for example. Um, So, it's a legal system that really aspires to conquer all the spheres of life. And the rabbis were really trying to construct the legal system that would actually work. And so we would expect, and this is what we find in early strata of the law. So in the early period of Talmudic law, it's called the Tanaitic period, and the most important composition of that period is the Mishnah. And in that period, we do, in fact, find that Talmudic law frequently relies on experts who can help the individual to navigate the halls of justice. Um, and as I said, what we would expect is that as the law develops and becomes more complex and more requires more information and specialized knowledge, then most legal systems require increasing reliance on the legal experts. And my book, however, points to a surprising phenomenon of rejection of experts' knowledge and more reliance on individuals for determining
0: the law. Okay, well, let's walk through that a little bit. Uh, What is the earliest rabbinic understanding or attitude toward human consciousness?
1: Wow, that's a very broad, huge question. Um, and it's a question that's been very much debated over the past decade. This is the subject that has come to a lot of attention. Um, I think the approach that, that I embrace and that um, I think makes the most sense is that when we look at uh, early rabbinic position, the position that we find that we find in the Mishnah, which is um, primarily a legal corpus, um, then we don't find much of an interior world. Um, we the understanding of uh, how people function is an understanding that focuses much more on their Uh, external circumstances on their actions and their deeds and um, the mental world the inner world of people is sort of a reflection of those external uh, of that external dimension so for instance um, if something becomes impure or is susceptible to impurity when it is when it is wet, okay, that's one of the laws of impurity in the Mishnah, then um, then it can also become susceptible to impurity if a person thinks about um about it becoming wet and being susceptible to impurity. but this has this still has to do with what's going, even though we're t- focusing on the mental world. It's the mental world about what's happening in the external world. And it's not so much, it's not a question of interiority or thoughts or experiences that a person is experiencing individually and nobody else knows what's going on. Um, So that's what we see in in the early period in the Mishnah.
0: And how does it develop? Later on, with the Amoraim, and even later in the Talmud.
1: So, in Talmudic literature, in the period of the Amoraim, and especially in the Babylonian Talmud, then we begin to see an increased focus on self-consciousness and on reflectivity, um, and this is this is part of a phenomenon that uh, is happening in the broader world, not only in the Talmud. Um, many scholars have written about how the period of late antiquity from the, around the 3rd to the 8th centuries is a period of uh, what's been called an explosion of new ideas about the self. So both in Hellenistic and in Christian writings, we see um, a concern suddenly um, with what's happening within a person So one of the most famous examples of this is Augustine, who, first of all, the composition that he's most famous for, which is called the Confessions, um, is concerned with uh, what's going on within him. And Augustine speaks many many times about how in the inner man dwells truth. So truth can only be found by looking within yourself. And in contrast to earlier texts, which tend to think of the individual as part of a corporate entity, a family, a tribe, a nation, um, Augustine opens up a period of what Charles Taylor has called radical reflectivity. So that's a sharp distinction between how I experience my own thoughts, my own emotions, my own activity, and how someone else experiences them. And this focus on the inner world has been explored in recent decades by scholars, um, both of early Judaism and of early Christianity, particularly in theological and narrative texts. So, for example, um, in the story of the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, um, Abraham is described in that story as very active, so he's walking from place to place and he's carrying the logs of wood and he's picking up the, um, the axe that he's going to use, uh, but we don't know anything about what happens within him when he's on this momentous journey uh, with this horrible mission to, to sacrifice his own son. We have no idea in the biblical story about what's happening within him. Um, and even though Auerbach has called this story fraught with background, so, you know, we can fill in perhaps what's in the story, but this, when you look at the biblical narrative itself, we only hear about his actions. And by contrast in the, in the, uh, first centuries and around the fourth century, then we begin to hear about both Christian and Jewish texts who are very concerned with what's happening within Abraham, what's happening internally during this story. And um, we find both Jewish and Christian texts that begin to fill in um, everything that he was going going through on that journey and his interior agonizing. Um, so that's in terms of a narrative text, for example. Um, We find also in Christian texts a deep theological concern with um, what happens to people internally. And as I mentioned, the idea that truth can only be found within and only by looking within will we be able to discover God. Um, So this is all part of a general interest in interiority that's happening in this period and around the the fourth and fifth centuries. And what I show in my work is that once there's this interest in the individual subject and a concern with interiority, then it cannot but impact also the law. So it can't be confined to only narrative or theology. Once there's this new perception of the subject as someone who is defined not only by, the, uh, by society or by the tribe or by the family, but rather there's a conception of individual subjects and an interest in what's going on within every individual subject, then that concern um, impacts the law as well.
0: Well, do we know whether that was the case in uh, the cosmopolitan cultures of, uh, Babylon. It's the, we're were talking about the Babylonian Talmud. Um, so, so besides the Christian, uh, progress in the same direction, do we know about the other, uh, my other religions?
1: So that's a very interesting question. Um, there's been some scholarship on this that has not been extremely fruitful. um, I also looked during, while working on my book, I looked at some Persian texts of the same period, um, and I did not find the same interest. Now, this is, again, this is something that's still developing, and it's possible that scholars who are, you know, more experts on me than, more experts than me on Persian scholarship will begin to discover this uh, in the future. Um, I looked particularly at the same legal cases that I was looking in in my my book, I tried to see what was happening in the Persian world, and I didn't find the same phenomenon. Um, So it's a very interesting question that you raise, uh, how, you know, if we're seeing this interest in the self, in the Western world, in the Hellenistic culture, and in the Christian culture that's coming from the West, well, how did that effect or impact what we're finding in the Babylonian Talmud. And this is also another contribution of of my work um, because scholars recently have been showing how uh, ideas coming from the West, from the Christian world and from the Hellenistic world, uh, have started to enter the Babylonian Talmud. Um, We find uh, Christian, uh, Christian texts that are very similar to texts that are found in the Talmud, and there's been a lot of work recently about trying to understand the roots of passage, how those ideas entered Babylonia, and how um, monastic Christians who lived in very similar circumstances to what we find regarding the rabbis of Babylonia um, may have had uh, interaction with one another. They may have been Uh, emissaries of ideas that came from the West and started to circulate within uh, Babylonia. Babylonia was a very pluralistic religious culture with many religions communicating with one another. Um, And that may be one of the ways that these ideas infiltrated and uh, entered the the Talmud. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Uh, You mentioned that uh, Judaism is an all-encompassing way of life, embracing both medical and ritual issues, which sometimes overlap. Um, In your book, you illustrate the development of rabbinic thinking with the example of whether or not one may violate the Sabbath for a woman in labor. Take us through the progress of legal thinking on that subject and the various points of views taken taken at different times.
1: Okay, so I'd actually like to focus on that example of um, medical questions on the Sabbath, but on a slightly different case that I discuss in the book, which is the case of um, a sick person who uh, uh, may need to eat on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. Um, and Yom Kippur, as is well known, is the most sacred day of the Jewish calendar. Um, and the main uh, prohibition, the main both obligation and prohibition of the day is fasting. So not not eating on Yom Kippur. And um, we know that this prohibition was taken extremely seriously from very, very early times. Um, In fact, in an early rabbinic text uh, called the Tosefta, a text that parallels the Mishnah from the Tanaitic period, then um, we hear uh, sort of hints of the idea that even very young children would fast. So even children who were one or two years old um, were uh, forced to fast on this day. And later rabbinic texts uh, formulate or sort of give us an idea of what stands behind that. And again, it has to do with this sort of uh, collective vision of the community and the idea that if young children are very hungry on this day and they cry out, then God will be um, more uh, amenable to listen to the cries and requests of the entire community as a whole. Um, so we know that this, this prohibition was taken very, very seriously from early days. And the question emerges in the Mishnah and in the Talmud, well, what happens about a person who is sick and may need to eat in order to not enter a state of, you know, being in a really dangerous situation, um, so on the one hand, there are many rabbinic texts which talk about the fact that saving, saving life uh, in the rabbinic tradition is of paramount value and it, uh, it, it um, overcomes any kind of prohibition, even uh, observing Sabbath law and Yom Kippur is part of Sabbath law. Um, so in order to save a person's life, you would override the, the prohibitions of Yom Kippur. Um, but on the other hand, we know that people took this uh, idea of fasting for atonement on Yom Kippur very, very seriously and may not have wanted to, um, to violate the fast and to eat even if they thought that, you know, they could be in some danger. So I think the assumption is underlying these texts is that if a person is really in clear danger, then obviously you would have to, um, you would have to break the fast of Yom Kippur and eat on that day. But, you know, as we know, medical conditions are usually not so straightforward and so clear cut. And so the question is, you know, what if a person is, on some kind of medication, but also feeling faint and, you know, doesn't think that they're actually endangering their lives. And maybe the doctors don't think that they're really endangering their lives, but maybe this is something that, you know, if you don't eat, then you're going. the situation could become more complicated and could lead to a more dangerous situation in the future. So what we find in Talmudic literature regarding this case is um, – Three models, basically, of uh, of looking at this situation. So the Mishnah, the early text um, from the early third century, says that when we have a sick person on Yom Kippur, the Mishnah says they feed him according to experts. And if there are no experts present, they feed him according to himself until he says enough. So... The Mishnah is basically instating a principle here. It's creating a kind of opposition between the experts and between listening to the individual, him or herself. But it's saying, as long as there are experts present, then we are going to listen to the experts. That's really the the main principle that guides us. Okay, so we're not going to listen. We're not going to listen to what the, Individual thinks about his or her situation, but rather we have experts that we that will determine whether this person should eat or not on Yom Kippur. Um, and only if there are no experts present, then we may listen to the to the individual. Um, and it's also just as a side note, it's interesting who are these experts. Because um, traditionally they've been understood to just be doctors, but my research actually showed that the word "experts" in um, Tanaitic sources, in the Mishnah and the Tosefta and other other sources, um, always refers to someone who's both has rabbinic expertise and expertise in a different area. So it could be ex- agricultural expertise or medical expertise. And I think that in this case, the assumption is that it's people who have both knowledge of the law and medical knowledge as well. And that's what allows them to make this decision. Now, when we look at the Talmud, um, we find two other models. The first and earlier model is a model that says, what's important to us is the value of life. And so if we have a case of an opposition, let's say the doctor says that the patient needs to eat, but the patient says, no, 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 I don't want to eat, then we're going to listen to the doctor. But if we have the opposite case where the patient says, you know, I really think I need to eat, but the doctor says, no, no, you know, it's better to fast in this case. It's not really a situation of any kind of danger. Then we'll listen to the patient. So in each case, we'll listen to the more lenient view because what's really important to us is not messing around with the value of life. And so we're always going to listen to the more lenient view, which already is a very different, it's a transition from the earlier position, which says we always listen to the experts. And it highlights to us that in the earlier position of the Mishnah, if we always listen to the experts, well, then what about a case where the expert says, you know, I don't think that this person needs to eat, but the patient says, but I think that I need to eat. Well, if the principle is that we listen to the experts, then, you know, that's what we're going to go with. We're, going to listen, we're always going to value the expertise and we're going to ignore what the individual person says about his own condition. So we have the model of expertise, we have the model of the value of life. But then later in the Talmud, we find another principle that's put forth. And this third model says that in any case where the patient says, I need to eat, even if there are a hundred experts who says that he doesn't need to eat, we still listen to the patient. And what is the reason for this? the Talmud cites a verse, a verse from Proverbs that says, the heart knows its own bitterness. So this verse, when we look at this verse, first of all, in this context, but also in general throughout rabbinic literature, we see that it refers to a kind of idea of an individual's conscience or an individual's autonomy, that basically what's, um, the rabbi Mar Ashi, who presents this opinion in the Talmud, what he's basically saying is, you know, these are questions that have to do with an individual's knowledge of him or herself. And therefore it can't be the expert who decides. And also it's not that what's important to us always is the value of life as a paramount, paramount value. But rather, we could have a different way of looking at this, which says that the most important thing is a person's knowledge of his or her self. Um, And it's a big question. What exactly is he referring to? Is he only referring to the physical aspect, meaning a person knows what his bodily condition is and therefore he should be the one to make the decision in this case? Or is he also referring to the fact that this is Yom Kippur after all, and a person knows his spiritual condition, let's say. He knows, you know, what sins he has and what's weighing on his conscience. And therefore, the person who who can make the assessment of his spiritual condition together with his bodily condition, he's the only one who's capable of making that sum and deciding, you know, do i want to still fast because i'm so concerned about my spiritual atonement or do i really think that you know my physical condition is is telling me that i need to be able to eat something so this is a kind of opposite if we if the first model the earliest model that we saw basically says we always rely on experts and we don't listen to the individual person and his or her needs this is a kind of mirror image of that. And this model is saying, you know, really the only the individual has a sense, has all the information that's needed in order to make um, a decision um, of this kind. Um, and so that's a very, very significant development from law, which is basically relying on the expert's knowledge and completely ignoring the individual to law that gradually develops over time and as a result basically depends on information that's accessible only to the individual. And really only the individual can make the decision about whether to eat or not on this most momentous of days.
0: Well, that was a really clear explanation. Thank you for that. Uh, And also it's interesting that Besides the legal aspect, the last point of view integrates an individual's physical being, her uh, psychological being, and her spiritual being, that it's integrated into one idea of the inner life on which the individual is the expert.
1: Exactly. And that's why, going back to the definition that we discussed at the beginning of our talk, it was so important for me to. Um, use that definition of the self, which integrates the psyche and the body. Um, because I think that many of the cases that we see in the Talmud are cases such as these, which discuss a kind of combination between um, the body and, and the mind as sort of interplaying with one another.
0: Well, getting away from the body a bit, uh, you have a chapter on divorce law. And I have to admire your courage for taking on that controversial and in today's world, unfortunately, highly politicized uh, area of Jewish law. Uh, Starting with the Mishnah, tell us about how the generations of rabbis expanded their views and therefore law and practice to include women's self-knowledge as a source for adjudicating divorce issues.
1: Um, Okay, so as is well known, um, Jewish marriage and divorce law is uh, asymmetrical, Um, and the main factor in Jewish divorce is really uh, the husband's um, free desire, free will to divorce his wife. Um, And many of the laws that we find in the early period uh, of the Mishnah are sort of Structured to um, to preserve that asymmetry, um, and of course, this has to do with a different historical uh, reality where women were very dependent on men and uh, were not autonomous. Um, and that chapter that I have in the book about divorce centers on uh, one specific Talmudic discussion. Um, which uh, which introduces the idea of a certain grounds for divorce that a wife can use to claim that she feels that the divorce that the that the marriage is over, um, and that presents a valid grounds for divorce, um, which would allow the rabbinical court to put pressure on the husband in order to grant the wife divorce um and uh so whereas the the Mishnah talks about grounds for divorce that the wife can invoke a very very limited set of grounds and grounds that have to do with very specific external circumstances so for instance if the husband works in a profession um like a tanner a leather tanner which uh causes him to have a horrible disgusting smell Um, so that's something that the wife can invoke as grounds for divorce, but obviously those are the kinds of circumstances that not only the wife is aware of, anybody can see or smell or, you know, know exactly what's going on. Um, and those cases are more rare. So what happens if there's just, you know, a sense of breakdown of marriage or just that the, the wife no longer wants to be married to, to the husband, Um, So the Talmud introduces the idea of ma'isalai, grounds which basically the wife can say, he's repulsive to me. So it's not that he's objectively disgusting or works in a certain profession that anyone would acknowledge that this man is repulsive and hard to live with him, but rather he's repulsive to me. So that idea of a woman's subjectivity and the woman being able to say, you know, I cannot live with this man. He's repulsive to me. um, That's an innovative idea, which again only appears in the Babylonian Talmud. And um, it's an idea which grants a lot of leeway to the wife. It gives her a lot of autonomy to be able to define what does she find um, repulsive. And so it presents uh, a very uh, radical and strong argument um, which would allow a woman to uh, to have to take more um, ownership, let's say, of over ending her own marriage.
0: Well, to this reader, at least, it, it seems that your book built up a careful case demonstrating that the rabbis of the Talmud Gradually reduced the scope of their own authority to speak for the personal private experiences of people and instead letting them testify to that themselves. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think that is one of the very interesting outcomes of the book. Um, You know, we tend to think of religious law as concerned with, um, first of all, concerned with the collective and the community. And especially with sustaining the authority of the religious decisors and having, you know, a one-size-fits-all legal system and preserving um, the authority of the experts or the people who stand at the at the head of the system. And what we see here in this book is that, first of all, we see that the rabbis recognize that there are cases where they have to allow the individuals to impact the legal decision Um, and that there's actually a tension within these earliest religious texts between expertise and authority on the one hand and the individual's autonomy or even conscience, we might say, on the other side. So this is a kind of multivocality within the Jewish legal tradition that can challenge the dichotomies that, we're, that we often use for thinking about, you know, authority and autonomy within the religious world um, in our contemporary world as well.
0: What would you say happened to that trend in later generations? Did it continue? Did it stop at the level of the Talmud? Or has it regressed uh, back to an earlier stage?
1: Um, I think that what's interesting is that, um, you know, in each of the chapters of my book, I trace a development from a certain idea in early law to how it appears in the later in the later strata in the, in the Talmud. Um, and what I saw when I looked at responsa uh, after the closing of the Talmud, so from the Middle Ages and until contemporary times, is that. What you find is that once you have these two um, opposing poles or positions within the early and authoritative tradition of the Talmud, then they keep popping up throughout um, throughout the ages in responsa. So if we take the example that we discussed a few minutes ago um, about uh, Yom Kippur, then if you have on the one hand the idea of the significance of the expert's authority, and on the other hand you have the idea that the heart knows its own bitterness, that we need to rely on the individual, then you see the interplay between those poles continuing throughout the ages in different responsa, and you can see how different uh, decisors throughout the ages were more attracted to one position. And so they would play up one pole and downplay the other pole. Um, and they would have to, you know, deal with it. Like if they're saying, you know, what's important is really that we listen to the expertise and we want the system to be objective. So then they have to explain, okay, you know, they say, okay, the Talmud says that the heart knows its own bitterness, but that only relates to very specific cases and it's not a general principle. And on the other hand, you'll find decisors who say, well, we always need to listen to the individual and even not in cases that were um, included in this uh, specific discussion. So for example, that principle of the heart knows its own bitterness becomes a very important principle in modern times um, uh, in response to that discuss um, psychological, different psychological uh, situations. Um, And then, you know, decisors who emphasize that aspect more so they have to think okay you know what do i do with the sources that talk about the rabbi's expertise and um and authority so i think that that it definitely continues that uh, that interplay but you know as you hinted to i think that it is true that um in the 200 years in the past 200 years uh, especially amongst orthodox decisors then there's a kind of somewhat of a fear of allowing uh, too much to be determined by the individuals. And, um, and there, is, uh, there is a, a privileging of uh, the significance of uh, the expert's authority.
0: Yes. Well, in any process of evolution, there's uh, also regression to the mean. So why wouldn't we expect to find it in the evolution of Jewish law and thinking as well. Um, Ayelet, we've taken up a lot of your time today, but before you go, tell us what you're working on now.
1: So I am continuing this interest with um, the authority of the system and the autonomy of individuals, but in a very different sphere. Um, I'm just beginning work on a book on... um, on the figure of Moses in the Bible, um, and how, um, how Moses relates to the uh, authoritative directives that he gets, that he receives from God. Um, and we often find that he relates these directives to the people of Israel in a way that's very different from the way that he receives them. Um, And so the question that is uh, accompanying or underlying this book is what is the role of the individual in um, determining and forming the law, uh, and in particular when this law is so obviously the divine law that is given directly from God, and what is the biblical portrayal of these episodes teach us about how we are supposed to understand um, obedience and disobedience within the biblical story.
0: Wow, that sounds like a great project. I'm looking forward to reading that book. Well, I hope Ayelet, in a few years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll stay tuned. Uh, Ayelet, I, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Take care, Ayelet. Thank thanks, thanks a lot. Thank
1: you very much, Renee. It was a pleasure.